Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. My name is Mike Pratz and this is part two of a special edition collaboration with Denver Health Ultrasound. In case you missed part one, you should probably go back and listen to that first. We are walking our way through an article on optic nerve sheath diameter in elevated intracranial pressure and also discussing some general pointers in gathering evidence from point of care ultrasound articles. So this is part two of two and here we go. Let's go from here to talking about some of the basic principles of point of care ultrasound methodology, because there's some really important points that I want to convey here. The first thing is that, as I said in the beginning, point of care ultrasound is not just one thing. It's not just getting the images. It's not just interpreting the images. It's everything all together. And that's what distinguishes point of care from comprehensive ultrasound. So we like to teach the IA method, which is a great paper that was published by Cray and Dave Boehner and some of our colleagues a long time ago. But essentially this describes how to break down every POCUS application. And I is for indication, A, acquisition, Second I is for interpretation, and M is for medical decision-making. So, like, for just to run through an example, for the FAST, indication, unstable, blunt trauma, acquisition, you get your four views, interpretation, is there free fluid or not, medical decision-making, they're unstable, there's positive FAST, they go to the OR. That's just a rundown. And, obviously, I'm not going through some of the the finer nuances of a FAST exam, because... That's not always the case. But in any case, you can use this when you're evaluating the methodology just as well because these same things can all go wrong and can have certain errors that these researchers unwittingly introduce into the methods. So for example, the indication. Are they doing the scan for the right reason? Is this the patient population that you care about? Really pay attention to those inclusion and exclusion criteria. For example, common exclusions are pediatrics, pregnancy, hemodynamically unstable patients, or we we hate to see it, but poor images, if they can't get adequate images. So look out for those because it really can affect if this applies to your patient population. I think that's a crucial point. Like that's kind of my stopgap for a lot of the studies is, you know, if you ruled, took all people with undifferentiated sepsis out of the picture, and it's a volume responsiveness study or a location of shock study, like, you're not answering the question I have. Like, I don't care about the people where I know where it's coming from as much as I care about the people where I can't figure out why they're sick. And for me, those studies go down significantly um, on my list as far as, like, my so what list is, do I actually care about this? And so I think... That's a really easy thing to glance over is inclusion and exclusion criteria, but I think it's crucial to deciding if you're going to use that paper or not. For example, in this paper, remember they only included people that were getting that invasive monitoring of their ICP. So think about like how many of your patients in the ED with TBIs is that going to be? In this study alone, it ended up only being, I think, 
like 16% of all the TBIs were actually met the criteria for the study. So 16% of, of all the TBIs, that's a pretty small population. So this may not apply to a lot of people that might have a related complaint. When we talk about acquisition and interpretation, I kind of group those together because it has to deal with how skilled is the person doing the test. So we mentioned this when we went through the methodology. It really affects how much they are either novice or skilled, what you do with the results and applies to the external validity. If this is something that you want to try to integrate into your practice, or if you want to try to teach others to do this and you hope to achieve the same types of accuracy. And then lastly, the medical decision-making, going along with Cray's point, it's kind of like, do I care about this? Are they using the information in a way that makes sense and is actually going to change what I do or help me in some way or hopefully help our patients in some way? So are they integrating this information into the clinical practice? And all of these things, all of the IAM should be used at the same time. You know, a lot of the studies actually introduce blinding or they have like one team doing the ultrasound another team caring for the patient like when you start to dissect out the parts of POCUS like that then you're no longer testing the strength of the modality itself you're not testing like what is POCUS for this application you're testing like how well how good is the imaging and then secondarily how good is the decision making based on the imaging Focus is always meant to be done together. It's, it was invented by definition so that the same person could be determining the indications, doing the images, and then acting on their patient based on the information that they received from that imaging. So to, to, to break it down kind of disrupts a little bit what POCUS was meant to be. And so just really pay attention in all these papers if they are treating POCUS as a single test or if they are through a series of blinding and stuff kind of separating out the, the acquisition from the interpretation from the medical decision making. Yeah, I think that's important. Two words you should never see on a POCUS report are correlate clinically. Like that's the point of POCUS is you are correlating it clinically real time. Um, and I think, you know, this is really the meat of the paper is this IAIM. And um, one thing that I think it's critiqued a lot, um, especially in like our cardiac arrest and critical care ultrasounds is your outcomes you're looking for. You're so what needs to be appropriate to what you're using POCUS for. Remember, POCUS is an imaging modality. It is not a treatment right? It's not like giving hydroxychloroquine and making everything in the world better. Um, POCUS is an imaging modality. And so we want to say, does it save time? Does it get me to my treatment faster? Does it narrow my treatment to be more appropriate for this patient? Does it diagnose the problem faster? Not does POCUS save lives? Like that's a silly question. You never be like, will this chest x-ray save your life? No, of course it won't. Chest x-rays are useless. Uh, but we need to treat it like an imaging modality and not a golden ticket that fixes everything wrong with our patient. And I think sometimes those questions are being asked inappropriately in research studies. And there are some really helpful guidelines that tell us what we should expect from diagnostic accuracy studies. And remember that a lot of these POCUS studies, because of the 
youth of the literature basis, because it's not that old, are still just looking, is it accurate? And so we can look to these STARD guidelines, which is put out by the Equator Network, which stands for Standards for Reporting Diagnostic Accuracy. One of those um, really, I, I don't want to say lazy, but one of those very special acronyms where you kind of get to choose whatever letters you want to just be part of the word. But this is really valuable when you are designing a study and also when you're reading studies to see like what are the best practices. But like we pointed out, best practices is usually blinding the diagnostic test to the clinical scenario. But in POCA studies, unlike almost everything else, you don't want that blinding. You want the person doing the study to be able to incorporate that information into the care of the patient. So in that way, POCUS is a bit unique. So now back to the paper we had. Um, we want you guys to kind of go through the results and see how this panned out. So how did the optic nerve sheath diameter and secondarily the optic nerve elevation work or fare in regards to um, correlating with elevated intracranial pressures in our severe um, TBI patients? Results didn't pan out uh, quite the way that they had hoped. So 858 patients were initially screened and only 120 were enrolled, which goes back to the problem Dr. Pratz was talking about um, in terms of only a select population of all TBI patients were eventually enrolled um, due to the requirement for a monitor. Um, they did uh, 292 um, optic nerve sheet studies on 120 patients, um, and usually there were about two measurements per patient. Um, um, and they said that only 15 of the 292 videos were ultimately rejected for unacceptable quality. Of note, like Ross was talking about a little bit earlier, the interim analysis uh, after 50 subjects showed the, inter, uh, the intra-class coefficient between the point of care and expert uh, synologists was extremely poor at 0 0.16, and then 10 of the 110 initial studies were of insufficient quality, so they had to do remedial um, instruction before they went ahead and gathered the remaining data. They said that after that, the uh, ICC increased to 0 0.87 um, for the remaining 70 cases, um, and they only had a 3% uh, unacceptable quality after that. So um, improved after the remediation, but they did have to do that remediation. The big thing is that um, the area under the curve for the ICP was 0 0.18, and their optimal threshold was 0.72 centimeters, which had a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 79%, neither of which met their minimum criteria. And then they also did the optimal optic disc elevation threshold, which was greater than 0.04 centimeters, with a sensitivity of 90% for that one and a specificity of 71%, so it was slightly better. They said that uh, among all of the thresholds that they could identify, none of them reached the uh, even the minimal criteria that they sent of a sensitivity greater than 90% and a specificity greater than or equal to 60%. Um, so they did not meet sort of their end goals that they were hoping for. Yeah, and that was kind of hard to to read you felt bad for the authors because when they set out they were like let's you know we're probably going to get a sensitivity of at least 95 percent let's see how specific we can get it when we set that threshold 
And then they're like, okay, we didn't get that one, but let's shoot for 90. And then they're like, okay, well, looks like that one actually didn't work out either. Let's, what's like the best that we can get, try to salvage this project. And it turned out that the best sensitivity they could get was 83% and the specificity 76%. So not what they were hoping for, but it was a noble effort. And I think it's important, even though they didn't get what they were hoping for, right? We all hope for a practice changing study to come out where, oh, yes, I can take this into my clinical practice tomorrow. But I think this is still a very important project, even though it, it seems like they failed. They didn't fail. They showed us that maybe this isn't the best test for us um, trying to predict uh, ICPs in patients with severe traumatic brain injuries. Yeah, I think that's a really important point is not every paper needs to have the answer, but it can open doors to new questions. So now I'm like intrigued about optic nerve elevation and maybe like you look at the study and you say, how would I do it differently or better? Um, And I think that's really important to kind of think about is what are you going to do differently next time? What if this was your study? And so maybe more training ahead of time, maybe having like a midway point where you retrain everybody, Um, maybe doing daily optic nerve sheath diameters, correlating those with your um, intracranial pressures and optic nerve elevations. And maybe you bring in a people of varying um, either their TIL score or an ISS score so that you can have the whole spectrum and say, are there trends? Is there a cut point? So not every paper has to give you the answer, but it can actually give you more questions that then it's on us, um, the rest of the POCUS community, to kind of follow up on. Because I don't think this is like throw the baby out with the bathwater and this is the worst study ever. I also don't think I'm going to go and say, oh, your ONSD is fine. I don't think you really have a brain bleed. Go home. Um, So I don't think either of those extremes is appropriate. Um, But I think it opens more questions, which... Sometimes having more questions than answers is a good thing, except when I'm interpreting your ultrasounds, and then I want all the answers and no questions left. Yeah, I think one big question I had at the end of this results section was one of the last paragraphs they talk about the analysis of serial measurements and how they found that uh, with that, they had an odds ratio of 3.72 with an area under the curve of 0.88. And that was the only point at which I could tell they mentioned it. They didn't mention it in the discussion at all. So um, maybe not using this binary, either it's elevated or it's not cutoff point, but maybe getting a baseline and then following that serial measurement out through the patient's hospital stay might actually provide more utility for us as clinicians. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually really happy you brought that section up because if you look back in the other literature, uh, this trending of ONSD has actually been shown over and over to be fairly reliable. And that also includes in wilderness scenarios where they measured uh, healthy subjects ONSD before they ascended to altitude, I think on Everest. Um, and that's actually where you see some of the most convincing data that does physiologically change. Um, and it's like a kind of like one paragraph of this thing. So so it is interesting, and there are other papers that looked at that question specifically. Of note, I believe that odds ratio was for the cutoff of 22 millimeters. So remember, that was not their primary outcome. This is where, in the discussion especially, they kept going back and forth between like 25 and 22, and I think they were essentially cherry-picking what had like the best results. 
I think you guys are totally right on track here that this is a dynamic process. And we found buried in supplemental table two, this very intriguing piece of information that actually, it turns out only a very small number of their patients had an elevated ICP at the time of their ultrasounds. 5% or 9% of the populations with either a elevated ICP or not elevated ICP respectively had the highest ICP at the time of the ultrasound. That is a huge problem. That means that the ultrasounds were not even being performed when the ICP was high. And that could certainly account for why this didn't pan out to be as accurate as the authors had hoped. I think that's really important is you can't like say optic nerve sheath diameter is totally useless because if it's not doing and being used when you want it to, it's like why we talk about FAST and PEDS patients, right? Like we're not asking the same questions in a lot of our literature. And so we can't say it's not useless, useful. It's just not useful in the same way it is in adults. So optic nerve sheath diameter may still have a role in intracranial pressure elevations, but not the way they're applying it and not the way they studied it. And I think that's a really important concept is not that this whole thing should be gone out the window, kind of like some of the cardiac arrest studies where they're like, ultrasound is bad, stop doing it. And you're like, no, no, no. Ultrasound just needs to be done the right way in cardiac arrest. And I think that's a really important concept is not only what you're doing, but how you're doing it and when you're doing it. And that's where you know, reading the abstract is probably not just enough. They pull the bolt out basically if the pressure is below 20 for more than 24 hours, but then they have a very small population that has a pressure greater than 22. So like everyone is going to be in this really narrow pressure window kind of, because like the bolts are all coming out if the pressures are too low for too long, but no one really is having super high pressures. That's going to make it hard to sort of find the people with the high ICPs because you're only looking at kind of elevated but not technically high ICPs when you're like doing this study. And then they also said like 41% of their patients got decompressive craniotomies. So it's like there's another like whole thing where it's like, oh, if it's going up, they just get treated like it just gets removed. So then like you never really get to test that population and really see if that would have been different. Yeah, that's a really excellent point, Nick. And you know, I I sympathize with these researchers. It's not like they could let their patients have high ICP for long. You know, they it's not something they want their patients to have. But at the same time, you need to have a reasonable incidence of pathology in order to test the strength of the test. So it's kind of a tough situation for them to figure out how to test this. And, you know, we all try our best. But that's really important when we interpret these results. One thing that I thought was fascinating because it's very similar to what I have found in my experience with optic nerve sheath diameter, remember that when Nick initially read the primary results, the threshold they came up with was about 7.2 millimeters, which is higher than our usual cutoff of about 5 millimeters. But the authors reanalyzed the data too, and they found that if you do an optic nerve sheath diameter of 5 millimeters, it was actually 100% sensitive for increased ICP in the study. Of course, the specificity was less than 15%. So 
questionable if that's useful, but I have to say that really reflects my experience that it's a very sensitive test if you use that cutoff. It's too sensitive, in fact, that you often are picking up all these false positives by people that have just had like a concussion or they've had, you know, who knows what that has just caused their optic nerve sheath diameter to dilate when they don't actually have a high ICP. So we've kind of done a lot of the discussion. I think, you know, they made a good effort. It's a cool study. I wouldn't change my practice off it. And I think that's where we go to with this discussion is, okay, so what? Like that's, this is your so what point is when you're analyzing the discussion. Is their takeaway the same as your takeaway? And if so, great, why? And what supports that in this paper? And if it's not the same as this, their takeaway, why not? And what would you like to see done differently? Something I was curious about, um, which I wish they would have done, they pointed out that the optic disc elevation had some promising data with it. I was curious if they would have combined optic nerve sheath diameter with the optic disc elevation. What sort of sensitivity and specificity would you, would you have gotten with those two data points? That question hasn't been studied very much, but I'll tell you anecdotally, as I've done ONSD, I've seen more and more cases where there's elevation and it. Um, in those cases, the patients tend to have the pathology in question. So to change gears, uh, I want to focus on something that's probably the most striking finding in this paper to me is the training of the point of care providers with the one hour PowerPoint presentation with video of technique demonstration and then several supervised scans. And then the idea that several weeks, months later, they could not obtain the images. I mean, this paper is describing our point of care ultrasound education platform, right? That's like pretty much how we do all of our education, except the interim, the interval time is actually even longer when we're, we, you know, we have intern ultrasound two weeks and then they don't get supervised scanning for weeks and weeks and weeks. I mean, this is scary to me. <laughs> So I think, I think that's uh, probably one of my big takeaways because, I mean, in my opinion, and I, I'm curious to hear what everyone else thinks, ONSD isn't even that hard, right? I mean, we ask, our, we ask our residents to do way more difficult studies than ONSD, and if they can't do this, you know, we really have to think about what we need, um, as a, as point of, what we need to do as point-of-care ultrasound educators or what we can do with technology um, to make these things more reliable. Yeah, it highlights the importance of feedback and continual feedback, not just feedback once. I think this also is a great place for AI potentially. You beat me to it. You know, there's not, it's not that hard to get the image and that's really all an AI program needs is a good image. Could this even be a nursing vital sign of the brain that could be done on the regular basis in a neuro ICU? Um, I guess the only question to that would be, we know the eye is probably one of our only tissues that we're like little resident to like image too frequently because of the theoretical risk of um, the thermal index uh, on the eyeball or on the retina, excuse me. Um, so I think that's one thing to consider, but I think this would be really cool as like a neuro ICU vital sign is your ONSDs on every couple hours. Yeah, I absolutely agree. But I'd definitely want to see a paper showing a clinical benefit first and I don't think I don't think we're there yet even though this is technically a negative study in that it, it didn't quite get the accuracy that they're hoping for there's a lot that can be gained from understanding why it didn't 
get that accuracy. And I think we have some good explanations here. One, we have some problems with the population that it was applied to, right? Not only are these ICU patients that had to have a super narrow, specific intracranial pressure and also needed to have an indication to have that intracranial pressure monitoring, but also we're not sure about if they measured the ultrasounds at the time where it would actually reflect the intracranial pressure. And then furthermore, there's the problems with the operators who didn't really agree very often on these measurements. So there's so many areas in that eye aim where it breaks down. And so I don't think that optic nerve nerve sheath diameter is out of the fight yet. It's just that we have to address these in some of our subsequent studies. For the sake of reiterating to our listeners, I'm going to try to summarize the study briefly, and then we'll talk about kind of what Cray and I came up with as our take-home points from the study. Then after that, we're going to go through our take-home points for actually gathering evidence from the literature. This was a prospective study, 120 patients with severe TBI and invasive ICP monitoring. The area under the curve for the ONSD to find an ICP greater than 25 was 0.76. The best they could get was an 83% sensitivity and a 76% specificity. Interestingly, the optic disc elevation had an area under the curve of 0.84, which was a little bit better. So our take-home points from this is that, one, the optic nerve sheath diameter had a pretty poor intra-observer reliability in this study of pretty novice users. Two, these test characteristics are not quite good enough to help us in identifying people with these really high ICPs. And three, the optic disc elevation was actually more accurate and therefore probably deserves some further study for its use in detecting elevated intracranial pressures. So hopefully we've helped you put some gel in your hands, especially in COVID time. Lots and lots of gel. Um, I think some take-homes from just gelling in general. Use abstracts with with caution. Remember they're a filtered version of the data. They're kind of the highlight reel and um, you have to go through the entire paper, and if you can only pick one section to focus on, I would focus on the methods and see if it makes sense. If they're not going after their primary objective, um, then you have to ask yourself, are they data mining? And if they're data mining, why are they doing that? Where did the study go wrong? Um, ask yourself, is this feasible? Are these my patients? Can I do this study? Do I have the equipment to do this study? And is it worth my time? Um, if it's going to take more time than the alternate test that's equally as good or better, then why are you doing it? And so I think the next final question is, will this change my practice? And as Matt kind of came to with this paper, if it's not going to change your practice, then it's more of a party trick than anything else. And I urge you to consider point-of-care ultrasound as a complex entity with multiple parts. So as you're reading the studies, consider how does the indication play in, the acquisition, interpretation, medical decision-making? Is it line up with patients you're seeing? Does it line up with how you're doing the study? And that affects the external validity that will come from this study. So consider that and realize that if you start to break apart those different aspects, you're no longer really measuring the strength of POCUS as a whole. Wowie zowie. Well, that was a whole lot of fun. And again, my biggest thanks to everybody at Denver Health Ultrasound. We couldn't have done this without you. And I think that it was really informative. I learned stuff. We learned stuff about the article and we got to see some good friends. So 
Thank you for joining us for another special edition episode. As always, you can visit our website, ultrasoundgel.org. Talk to us on Twitter. Visit our Facebook. And until that day, we will talk to you later. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasoundgel.org.